Amen, amen. As the little ones set out, let's just show our appreciation for all those who are going to be serving them. Amen. Well, it's good to see you. <clears throat> if, you're, if you're kind of new to church, I was just thinking this. We use a lot of language that probably, I don't know if it makes sense. I don't know if other people use it. A um, couple weeks ago, we, we ran a Jack and Jill shower, and somebody asked us what that was. I think out in the world, they call that a stag and doe uh, shower. And for whatever reason, church folks just call it Jack and Jill. And somebody thought that was like a theme, like the Ernie and Bert shower. Um, <clears throat> it's not a theme. It means boys and girls, just FYI. I don't know why I felt the need to clarify that, but I think that will be helpful for those of you who are planning on coming dressed up as Jack or Jill to the shower. Anyway, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would love for you to open it to Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30. Uh, that's on page 920. Again, if you're, if you're new to the Bible and trying to work your way through the Bible, figure that out. There's page numbers on the pew Bibles in front of you, so that can be very helpful. Page 920. And I, I want to let you know, if I sound a little husky this morning, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to do my best Barry White up here, but as um, uh, Matt mentioned, we had the men's conference. So this is the sort of third teaching time I've had this week. And I thought about... Uh, taken a, a throat lozenge before I came up here, but I nearly choked to death at the men's conference on a throat lozenge, so now I'm a little gun shy, so you just have to bear with me. All right, so hopefully you've got Acts 11, 27 to 30 open in front of you. Let me just remind you where we are in the flow of this series that we've been working through. Uh, last Sunday, Pastor Rob walked us through the aftermath of the Apostle Peter's evangelistic visit to the household of Cornelius. Cornelius, of course, was a Gentile, and that was a big deal because Jews did not mix with Gentiles because of all the food laws. You just couldn't accept hospitality in a Gentile home. But we saw in that story how the Holy Spirit directed them to make some changes so that the mission could go forth, so that they could do evangelism in one another's homes. And, and that was quite the adjustment. Uh, it took the church a little while to figure out the shape, the breadth, and the parameters of the new covenant. That makes sense. We have to be sensitive to that. When you're used to the shape, the breadth, and the parameters of the old covenant, certain changes are going to seem very alien and perhaps even unwelcome. Jesus warned us about this. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And the new wine, of course, we're referring to symbolically there, is the wine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a game changer, as we talked about this weekend at the men's conference. So yes, certain things are going to be different on the other side. There is a reason they call this the new covenant, right? There are some things that are different in really wonderful ways. Thanks be to God. We talked about the next story, so if you're just looking at your Bible as it's open in front of you and you're kind of tracking and trying to figure out where we are, it may look to you at first like we're skipping a little bit, but we're not. Uh, we talked about the story of Paul's hidden years, and uh, in order to do that, we looked at the bracket, when he left the story in Acts and when he came back. So we've actually already talked about Paul being brought back out of obscurity, <coughs> excuse me, being 
brought in to help pastor the very unique church in Antioch. So we have talked about that. And that brings us to this somewhat controversial story about the prophet Agabus at the end of Acts 11. So I'll begin reading at verse 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Holy Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the land. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so they did, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, as you can see, as we read through that passage, there's a a few questions that are raised. Uh, And in order to answer those questions in a useful and thorough way, it would actually be helpful to move forward a little bit and to pull into this discussion the second appearance of Agabus in the narrative in Acts. So just do that. You'll just have to flip maybe four or five pages, depending on your font size, to Acts 21, 7 to 14. Let's just look at these together. So keep a finger or a bookmark in Acts chapter 11 and just flip five or six or seven pages to the right. It's on page 930 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful. I I told you when we started this series, we've called this series Church 2.0, that we were combing through these foundational narratives in order to help us think about what the church is and how the church should be functioning. Now feels like a really good time to make changes in the church. Kind of like how if your basement floods, you know, it's a great time to pick out new carpet and paint colors, isn't it? If you're going to renovate, now is the time. So we're looking back in order to resource our movement forward. That's the basic idea in the series 2.0. And I do think there might be something helpful for us in this part of the story. So listen again to the word of the Lord, Acts 21, 7 to 14. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. All right, well, if you didn't understand why the first reading was controversial, I'm guessing you've got a better handle on that now. Uh, This little snapshot from the early church seems to reveal some assumptions that were obviously accepted as commonplace then that are not so commonplace now. In fact, that's one of the most interesting aspects of the story, the fact that Luke just kind of throws this out without any anticipation that we would need some help in 
making sense of it. It's as though he assumes that, of course, we have prophets in our midst who are able to predict geopolitical events. Of course, we have people in our church who have four daughters living at home who regularly prophesy. Of course. And of course, we know when to listen to the counsel of prophets and when to ignore them. Of course. Of course. We do this sort of thing every day. Except that we don't. And therein lies the controversy. Why don't we have these sorts of experiences? Should we be having these sorts of experiences? And if so, how so? Getting at those answers is the entire point of this series. So let's just slow down and attempt to organize what we've seen so far in these two texts. Looking at these two stories together, I think the first thing it would be helpful for us to notice is that clearly women can be prophets. Now, is that the most immediate point in the story? No, I don't think so. Is it the most profound point in the story? No, I don't think so. You might even say it's an incidental detail, and I wouldn't argue with you on that, but it is a detail, incidental or not, and I think it's actually very important for us to stop and affirm that. As conservative, Bible-believing evangelicals, we are constantly being forced to defend our beliefs about sexuality and gender. We're constantly being asked to explain why we believe the things we do about men and women. As Bible-believing Christians, we believe that men and women are equal but different. Would, Would you feel okay saying amen to that? equal but different. That is what we believe. That's what we believe for a long time. That is the traditional biblical position. We believe that both men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. They are in that sense ruling creatures of enormous dignity and worth. Can you say amen to that? Amen. But we also believe that in the providence of God, their leadership will be exercised in slightly different ways and in slightly different contexts. And it is that particular nuance that has come under assault in the last three decades from the culture. And so for most of us in this room, we've spent our entire lives on the defensive with respect to this issue, haven't we? The culture knows what we deny. And so I think it's very important for us to be loud and clear about what we affirm. And we affirm as Bible readers that women can be prophets. We've got five prophets specifically identified in the story and four of them are women. I don't know why and I don't know how you would want to deny that. In Acts chapter 2, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, quoting the prophet Joel, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days... I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So 
when we meet female prophets in Acts 21, we are not supposed to be surprised by that. Luke does not assume that if we are careful readers, that we will be surprised by that, which is why there is no explanation, no help in understanding what to do with that. Luke told us in chapter 2 that it was coming, that it was going to happen. Here God has obviously done it. I think the assumed response is simply, praise the Lord. Now, to be clear, saying that a woman can be a prophet is not the same thing as saying that she can be a pastor. That argument is sometimes made by our progressive friends, but I, I don't think the logic holds, because a prophet is not a pastor. Just like how in the Old Testament, a prophet was not necessarily a priest or a king. In fact, very often in the Old Testament, it was the job of prophets to speak truth to power from outside the official hierarchy of the covenant community. We think, for example, of the time when God sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke David. Do you remember that? He told him a story, and at the end of the story, David was so upset. It was a story about a rich man who had many sheep, who instead of killing one of his own sheep to help out a, or to feed a guest, he, he stole from his poor neighbor who only had one sheep. David, who had been a shepherd, right? Nathan knew how to tell a story. David, who had been a shepherd, was furious. And he said, bring me that person. We'll slaughter them, right? Like, that's, out, that's an outrage. And Nathan points at him, and he says, you are the man. This is what you have done. God has given you wealth. God has given you riches. God has given you everything you could possibly imagine. And you weren't content with that. You used your power to take from the neighbor next door. You took his wife. And then you had him killed. You are the man. And this thing that you have done has outraged the Lord your God. And the sword will not depart from your house. Do you remember that? Man, Nathan was a powerful prophet. But being a powerful prophet did not necessarily make him, did not in any way make him a priest or the king. And likewise, to say that Philip had four daughters who prophesied is not to say that they were pastors or elders. The argument just doesn't flow. It doesn't go. Listen, the bottom line is this. I think there are right now many gifted prophetesses in the church speaking truth to power. They're saying things that the people in charge need to hear but that doesn't make them pastors and elders. We don't have to be the same to have equal dignity and worth. What we need to do is listen to each other, appreciate each other, and devote ourselves to the tasks and spheres to which we have been assigned. That is, in a nutshell, what the Bible has been saying about gender for a very long time. And I think it's important for us to be known both for what we affirm and for what we deny. Now, we'll talk more about this in a few weeks. We're going to do a kind of an excursus sermon on the eldership. What is the eldership? Why are there people given particular responsibilities in the church? What is that all about? But for now, I just want to make sure that we're seeing and cataloging what is there in the text. And I think it's very important for us to affirm that women can be prophets, thanks be to God. Second thing that needs to be said here, on the basis of what we've read so far, is that prophecy must be discerned. I think that's one of the most remarkable uh, features of this story. In the first part of the story, in uh, Acts chapter 11, Agabus comes along, and he's got a prophecy about um, an event 
that's going to have an impact on the church, and the church responds to that. They immediately send money from point A to point B in order to address that challenge. But then in Acts 21, same guy has a prophecy, and this time he is heard, his word is weighed and discerned, and then largely rejected. That's remarkable. Look, look again at Acts 21, 12 to 15. Luke says that Agabus shared his prophetic word. He actually did a little prophetic drama, right? Which is sort of reminiscent of, you'd see that sometimes in the Bible, in the Old Testament, do a little drama. So there's a prophetic drama. Then he says, when we heard this, we as Luke, Luke was present for this story. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. What in the world is going on there? Because that is not something, that that is not the sort of story you would expect to run into in the Old Testament. Wayne Grudem remarks upon that oddity. He says, it is significant because Paul simply disobeyed their words, something he would not have done if he had thought that they were speaking the very words of God. In this story, it appears as though Paul took the words of prophets seriously, but not authoritatively, which is exactly the advice that he gave to other Christians. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Now, remember, in Acts chapter 2, we were told that in the New Testament era, prophecy would, in some sense, be generalized. Every, it sounds like everybody's going to do it. Every, every true, born-again, spirit-filled believer, in some sense, is a prophet. Now, listen, I would, Pastor Levi had a great line at the men's conference. I, I, he said something. Oh, I think he said something like, uh, human beings are dead in their sin, and you, you can't you know, uh, put your faith in Jesus unless God does a work of awakening in your heart. Is that the sum of it? Okay, and then he said this, and I thought it was a great line. He says, if your system doesn't allow you to say amen to that, then you need a new system. Because it's right in the Bible. You were dead in your trespasses. That's in the Bible. Well, likewise, I would say, if your system does not allow you to say that in some sense, after Pentecost, every truly born-again spirit-filled man and woman in the church is a prophet, you need a new system. Because that statement was made on the birthday of the church. It's right here, right? Your young men, your old men, your rich people, your poor people, even your male and female servants. Like, if they're saved, if they're filled with the Spirit... They're going to prophesy in some sense. Old people, young people, men, women, rich, poor. God will pour out his spirit and they will prophesy. But, clearly not all with equal giftedness. Clearly not all with equal accuracy. Clearly not all with equal perceptiveness. Some people are going to be more sensitive to the spirit than others. Some people are going to be more self-aware than others, so they're going to be better at knowing when this is a spiritual word of guidance flowing through them and when this is just their own personal opinion or personal bias. Some people are going to be biblically, more biblically literate than others, so they're going to be able to make sense of when it's the Spirit speaking and when it's probably the devil trying to hijack the entire system. And therefore, 
given this wide spectrum of ability, obviously we cannot and should not treat all words of prophecy equal. We're going to have to test them. We're going to have to discern them. We're going to have to keep what is good and discard the rest as we see the Apostle Paul doing in this story. The third thing we need to say based on the text that we've looked at is that prophecy is not ultimate. As we've just mentioned, Paul felt free to disregard some of what was said to him, some of what was delivered to him by the prophet Agabus. Agabus spoke as he believed the Spirit had been leading him to speak, but the Apostle Paul had a clearer and more authoritative understanding of the gospel. This is the intended order of things in the church. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. So the prophets in Corinth were required to operate within the authoritative boundaries of the apostolic gospel. They were required to acknowledge the superiority of apostolic authority, and if they did not, then they were not to be recognized. By the way, this is not all that different than how things operated under the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, the revelation given by Moses was foundational And the test of any future would-be prophet was whether or not his message aligned with that of Moses. If it did not align, then they were not to be recognized. So here, the revelation given by God through the apostles is foundational. It is normative. It is controlling. And therefore, any small p prophet who diverges from that authoritative foundation is not to be recognized. And I would argue that it is the failure of the church to enforce this guideline that has led to so much chaos and confusion with respect to the gift of prophecy. And yet, the abuse of a thing is not the negation of a thing. We all understand that logically, don't we? And we apply that basic knowledge in other areas. Let me ask you a little question. Has the ministry of the pulpit ever been abused in the church? I mean, listen, I am a preacher, I'm a pastor, but I will argue, I would think it is this gift right here that has been abused more frequently than any other. See, standing in this box here gives me authority. That's actually how our whole system works. When I stand in this box and open my Bible, the assumption, it's not just the assumption, it's communicated in our polity. The assumption is that I stand up here with the backing of our 10 elected elders whose job it is to make sure that the message coming out of this magic box aligns with our statement of faith and has been, those parameters have been vetted and are policed by them. So in theory, if I, if I depart from our statement of faith, one of the elders is supposed to taser me or something me after this service, and, and, and if I've said something that deviates from our statement of faith, I or the elders will have to issue an attraction the following Sunday. That's literally how our system works. By the way, just so you know, we talked all this through at one of our fifth elder Sundays before I brought it to you because I don't ever stand up here until I know I've got 10 guys agreeing with me. So that's the system. Man, that's a powerful system. But again, has it ever been abused? 
Have you, has it ever happened that somebody stands in this magic box and starts just delivering their opinions, but they land on the congregation like boulders from heaven because they come from the magic box? The pulpit's been abused more often than any other gift or ministry in the history of the church. Should we therefore outlaw preaching? No. I don't think we would want to do that. I think what we would want to do is insist that it be done correctly and that it be done within the established binding parameters. Well, might I argue, as with preaching, so with prophecy. So what would that actually look like? Let me leave you today with three simple guidelines for exercising the gift of prophecy within the Christian church. Number one, never use prophecy to do what the word and wisdom have been given to do. A hammer is a wonderful tool, but if you try to use your hammer to open up cans of tuna in the kitchen, you're going to make an awful mess, aren't you? And that's what happens. People fall in love with a particular tool and they overuse it and they make an awful mess. That happens all the time with the gift of prophecy. People fall in love with it and they try to use it in situations where it has no business being used. Let me ask you a question. If there's a member in our church who is sleeping with his father's new wife, what should the board of elders do? Should they pray for a word of guidance? Should they ask for a word of knowledge? Should they all go have a nap and hope that somebody has a dream that would give them some kind of pointer as to how this situation should be handled? No, they should open up their Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5 or Leviticus 18, read what is there, and conduct themselves accordingly. Let me ask you another question. Suppose someone asks you, should I co-sign my neighbor's loan application? Well, again, why would you ask for a word of prophecy on something like that when the wisdom of the Holy Spirit has already been given to you in the book of Proverbs? In Proverbs 17, verse 18, it says, One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Have you ever read the book of Proverbs? One of the mo- the, most of the things Proverbs talks about, you're kind of like, yeah, I can see that. Because uh, it makes sense, right? There's a ton of content on you know, choosing your spouse carefully. There's a ton of content about not exposing yourself to sexual temptation. There's a ton of, of um, proverbs on the importance of waking up early and being a hard worker and all that kind of stuff. Those are like the main ones. But then there's like a strange, large volume of content about not serving as a guarantor for other people. Almost like somebody had a bad experience. Like, you're like... This is like a quarter of the content, it seems at times. Like it's a lot of content. Don't be a guarantor. Do not yoke yourself. Don't put yourself on the hook financially for people you don't know. Don't foolish benevolence. Like you want to look like the big shit. You want to look like a nice person. So you co-sign on your neighbor's small business loan. You don't even know them very well. Don't do that, the Bible says again and again and again. So you don't need to pray about that. Friend, there is a whole section of the Bible providing guidance on how to make financial decisions 
how to make relational decisions, how to make social decisions. The gift of prophecy has not been given to supplant or replace what has already been given. The overuse of this tool, just like the complete neglect of this tool, gets the church into trouble. We want to use it the right way in the right situation. Now, in the preaching workshop this week, we, you know, we, we workshop with each other, we help each other out, and, and uh, the brothers there suggested that I give an, a good example, a positive example of, of how this might look and how this might function in the church. I think that's probably helpful. Because I understand that as we're sitting here, the problem is we're all hearing through the lens of our previous experience. If this is your first Sunday at church, you just think, wow, Christians are super weird. (laughs) Fair, fair point. (laughs) But if you've come here from some other church, it depends on the experience you've had, how you're hearing this. And so maybe you think I'm saying something that I'm not saying. In fact, I know for a fact I'm going to get emails this week from people who are hearing things I'm not saying. Pastor, are you saying... Are you saying that people now can just like write whole new books of the Bible after eating expired yogurt? Is, is that what you're saying, Pastor? Please let me be clear, that's not what I'm saying. So, maybe an example would be helpful. Several years ago, uh, we became aware that the property to the northwest of us was coming up for sale. And uh, we talked about it briefly one night after elder prayer, which we used to host in my office. And then after elder prayer, uh, one of the brothers, I believe it was Bob, suggested, why don't we just go over and pray over the building? We didn't know. There was no verse. It's not like somebody could say, well, wait, wait, Bob. Like, what about, what about 2 John 1, verse 4? I, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Just, no, that's not helpful. What about, there, there was no verse we could identify that clearly indicated what we should do. And there was no principle of wisdom either because we were in a good financial situation. Though, an argument could have been made that the money we had should have been sent off to the mission field. So what should we do? We didn't know. And and so we huddled up together by the building and we prayed. And afterward, we all had a strong sense from the Lord that he wanted us to purchase that building which we did. It's now what we refer to as the Leadership Center. Now, is that weird? Is that charismatic? Have we opened the door to something dangerous there? Or is that just the sort of sweet and gentle guidance that we should expect and treasure in a new covenant church? The sort of sweet and gentle guidance that was promised to us on the birthday of the church. Listen, friends, if we're going to make our way through this dark and fallen world, we're going to need some guidance. We're not always going to have a verse for things. You ever find yourself nowadays confronting a situation you could not have even imagined five years ago? I feel like there's whole terms and language that I I can barely make sense of. There are debates raging in my neighborhood that would have been inconceivable to every single person in my neighborhood 15 years ago. Does the Bible speak specifically chapter and verse to every one of those situations that we're going to face in the future? Provides principles. 
provides guidelines, but then are we sometimes going to face a situation where we're like, God, we don't know what to do. Please guide us. Now listen, some people are going to say, wait, it sounds like you're disparaging the word. It sounds like you don't think the Bible is sufficient. No, 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 no. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Because it is only having the word, knowing the word, loving the word, revering the word that allows you actually to take, discern, test, and apply spiritual guidance. And that leads us to the second guideline I want to highlight here. We need to use this gift cautiously and appropriately, of course. And, of course, we need to test everything. That's what that implies. We need to test everything. Paul listened to the prophet Agabus. He he heard what Agabus and the others were saying. He didn't rebuke them for speaking out of turn. He didn't question whether or not they had accessed some sort of portal to the netherworld, right? He He didn't take that kind of negative approach, but neither did he receive their guidance unquestioningly. He understood that prophecy of this sort involves both hearing and interpretation. Agabus may have discerned in the spirit that hardship and suffering lay ahead for the Apostle Paul. But then Agabus had to interpret what he had heard and how the Holy Spirit intended him to use what he had heard. And in at least one of those two places, he clearly got it wrong. What if the Spirit had shown Agabus the sort of suffering and hardship that lay ahead for the Apostle Paul, not so that he could warn him off, but so that he could... Pray for him as he walked bravely forward into it. See, Agabus appears to have assumed that suffering is something people should always try as hard as they can to avoid. But Paul knew better. Paul knew that it was the will of God for Messiah himself to suffer. That was the essence and substance of the gospel that Paul preached. Every time he was given an opportunity, he opened his mouth and declared that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul understood that the path of the gospel is actually down, 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 and then up, up, up into glory. And Paul was bound and determined to walk on that very same path. So he said, thank you, dear brother Agabus. I so appreciate you. Thank you for bringing that message that the Spirit laid on your heart. Please Use it to motivate and fuel your prayers for me moving forward. Do you see that? He tested the word of prophecy against the authoritative outline of the apostolic gospel. He kept what was in alignment and he left the rest aside. And if we are to make proper use of the gift of prophecy in the church again in the future, we must be prepared to do the same Test everything. Yes. Yes. And then also, I put this one last because I think it's the one we need to hear the most. Do not despise prophecies. The Apostle Paul said both. He said to the Thessalonians, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Now listen, I'll tell you this. If I were preaching this sermon in a Pentecostal church, I think I would reverse the order of my application. I would start here so that I could build up to what I imagine they most need to hear. Don't overuse this and test everything. But that's not what we need to hear, is it? 
Not many of us are overusing this gift, are we? Not many of us are in a place where we need to be reminded to test everything because our general habit is to admit nothing. Which is why we need to hear this. Do not despise prophecies. You know, we can't pat ourselves on the back. I feel sometimes like our church, and it's good. I mean, I love the DNA of our church. That's why I'm here, right? But I'm just saying, I feel like sometimes we're almost going to break our arm patting ourselves on the back because we're the church that takes the Bible seriously. We don't even care whether our friends and neighbors think we're nuts, right? Like, hey, man, if the Bible says it, we do it. We will break our arms patting ourselves on the back, believing what the Bible says about sexuality and gender. But what about here? What about here? Are we going to take this passage in the Bible seriously? This passage seems to be saying that the gift of prophecy is a good and precious gift. Despite the fact that it can be abused, despite the fact that it can be messy, yes, even still, it is a good and precious gift. And therefore, do not despise prophecies. Listen, friends, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I will tell you this. On principle, it makes me very nervous marching into the future, having disregarded and largely thrown away a gift that Jesus thought we would need. And that just seems unwise to me. That seems borderline reckless. That seems arrogant. I'm nervous about people, I'll I'll throw myself in this, I'm nervous about being the sort of person who thinks myself wiser than Jesus. So I say we bring it back. Carefully, cautiously, recognizing and celebrating all the parameters and structures of the apostolic gospel. Yes, yes, yes. But also affirming that properly understood, properly discerned, properly constrained and properly applied, the gift of prophecy, the sweet and gentle guidance of the Holy Spirit flowing through all truly born-again, spirit-filled men and women is a blessing and a kindness to the church. It's something we're going to need And it is something that has been purchased for us through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for how it encourages us when we're paying a price for being on the right track. And then we... Thank you as well for how it rebukes us and gives us a solid nudge when we may be off track. Lord, whatever is of me in this message, I pray would disappear from hearts and minds. Whatever is of you, Holy Spirit, I pray would crack the ice, soften the clay, so that the seed of it could take purchase in every heart. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.